Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to the book of James, chapter 3. James, chapter 3. And if you want to, as well, to Proverbs 22, we'll just be reading one verse there. Our focus of our study today will be James, chapter 3. In Proverbs 22.4 we read, Humility is the fear of the Lord, its wages are riches and honor and life. Our text today is in James chapter 3. And if you will look at verse number 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In our series of meditations today, we come to the matter of humility. And as with previous meditations, I will suggest four avenues of thought for meditation. Let's begin, first of all, number one, with what is humility? What does it mean to be humble? I would point out that, in fact, in both passages in the Proverbs 22, here in James 3, humility is tied with wisdom. In Proverbs, it is equated with the fear of the Lord. Um, And here, it is the humility that comes from wisdom. So, as we begin, let's establish what humility is. Uh, A pair of authors who have written some wonderful stuff on this describe humility. They don't define it, interestingly enough. They describe humility as an unusually uh, low concern for status coordinated with an intense concern for some good, a relative lack of concern to appear excellent to others. In other words, humility is described as someone, or describes someone who is not really concerned, unusually low concern uh, for status. They don't necessarily want to appear to be excellent to others. I have found with many things, oftentimes, to help me understand something, I need to see what its opposite is. I think This is the case with humility. It's sort of of virtue versus vices. Humility is the opposite of a number of vices. Let me give you a list. Arrogance, vanity, conceit, egotism, grandiosity, pretentiousness, snobbishness, presumptuousness, uh, and we will see this later, haughtiness, self-righteousness, domination, selfish ambition, and self-complacency. Now, all of these vices differ from one another in various ways, but they are all opposites of humility. Um, I would say where we begin is that humility is knowing who one is before God. Knowing who one is before God. In James chapters 3 and 4, and one could argue, in fact, that it's throughout the epistle, but in chapters 3 and 4, The main idea is humility tied with wisdom, in tandem with wisdom. Simply put, the humble person acknowledges his or her need of grace, while the insistently self-centered person feels no need of such grace. So a person who is in fact humble sees that they have a need of grace. Okay? Now, all of this leads to an important question, which is critical to how we define humility. Is humility an attitude or is it a set of actions? 
This is the second thing that we should consider. What is humility? Secondly, is it an attitude or is it a series of actions? Perhaps it would be better to put, is humility demonstrated in attitude or in one's actions? To which I would answer, yes. When you consider that it is an attitude that is demonstrated in actions, then it must be both an attitude as well as actions. In James, in our text, he says, let him show it by his good life, that is actions, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. Just a brief background to our text. If you look at verse number six, which I think is key to this whole passage, but he gives more grace, that is God does. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is always on our side. He is tirelessly on our side. He always has more grace to give. He has infinite grace, if you wish. He has more and more to give. The question is, will we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need of grace, or will we see ourselves as self-sufficient? As God gives us grace, we are to respond in obedience. That is to say, grace isn't simply a gift, and we're like, okay, I want more, I want more, and, and do nothing about it. God says, here is my grace, and in the same breath says, here are my commandments. I have given you the grace so that you, in fact, can obey me. It should surprise us, because we find this in the pattern throughout Scripture, but supremely in the Exodus. God delivers them out of slavery. After 430 years of slavery, God brings Israel out of slavery, and then what does he do? He gives them the Ten Commandments at Sinai. He gives them his law. So first God gives grace, and then he gives them commandments. He gives us, he tells us what are the things we are supposed to do. So James, by quoting from Proverbs, interestingly enough, says that God opposes the proud, those who are insistently self-centered. He gives grace to the humble, because the humble person knows that they have need of grace. As Jesus told the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So it's the humble who get more grace. And because of this grace, they are to obey. And from verses 7 to 10, we have 10 imperatives, or 10 commands, if you wish, that James gives us. The 10th one is, humble yourselves before the Lord. To humble ourselves means to recognize we are in need of grace. We are in desperate need of God's help. And if we do that, he will in fact lift us up. So God gives more grace to those who are humble. But then James does something that one might say is a bit puzzling. He then brings up three areas of difficulty, if you wish, or problems that are tied to this whole matter of, in fact, being humble. It's in chapter 4. Verses 11, 12 deal with slandering other people. Verses 13 to 17 deal with being presumptuous about the future. And then verses 1 and 6 of chapter 5, the misuse of wealth. Why do people slander others? Why are they presumptuous about the future? Why do they misuse the wealth that God has given them? Because they lack humility. Because they do not have humility, 
we see this behavior in them. At the beginning of chapter 4, James deals with a variety of problems that they have. Wars and fighting. I mean, not just, not just bad relationships, as we confessed in our uh, prayer of confession today, but the determination to win. The determination to win. Secondly, they have a desire to have, but they are frustrated because they don't get what they want. And they desire to possess, but they don't want to share. So all of these things that they are doing is wrong. And the problem is, in a word, humility. They don't have it. These three symptoms of self-centeredness or the absence of humility um, are the issues that James deals with. The Lord willing, I'll deal with two today. Um, It is important for us I think to understand that the symptoms that James talks about um, beginning in verse number 11 do not arouse suspicion in us or concern in us because that's just the way people are that people do talk badly about one another they do make assumptions about the future yeah I'm going to do this I'm going to do that and they misuse the wealth that God has given them that's just the way people are James would say Precisely, It is because people are not humble before God, this is the way that they behave. They are arrogant and put down other people. They are presumptuous that they in fact are in control of their own lives. And they want to hold on to wealth, get more wealth, and they do not want to share. Let's look at the first problem. That's defamation. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I'd point out that James begins this rather harsh section by calling them brothers. Um... Like Paul, just in the midst of dealing with really serious problems, he's always there to remind them, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. You may not be acting like it, that's why I'm writing this letter to you, but you are my brothers. And James in this book is not intending to inform. When we went through James, we saw this. This book is not a book of information as such, but it is in fact a book of instruction. That is to say, he is commanding them, he is urging them, this is the way you're supposed to live. And the charge he gives here is, do not slander one another. In the King James, speak not evil of one another. Now, let's be clear about something. To defame someone may be to speak the truth. Okay? Usually we think of defamation as you are lying about someone. You are defaming them in that way. But the fact is, oftentimes you can defame someone by saying what is true. And just because it's true doesn't mean you have the right to say it. I've heard a number of people say to me over the years, it's not gossip if it's true. If I tell you something about someone and it's true, then that technically isn't gossip. No, it is gossip. Whether the information is true or false, 
we tell people this information to make ourselves appear superior to the person that we're talking about, the person that we are defaming them. And James says, no, do not do this. It's not simply a a breach of truth, because you may in fact be telling someone the truth. It's not even a breach of love, that you're showing a lack of love for the person. It is that, okay? As Peter tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. So rather than telling whether it's true or not, real news or fake news about someone, uh, if you love them, you in fact are not going to share this. But that's not what James says. For James, it is a breach of humility. When you defame someone, you are not being humble. You are lifting yourself up. The reason you share this information is to somehow make yourself look better than the person that you're talking about. James fleshes this out along four lines. How should we regard one another? We are brothers and neighbors. Um, We belong to one another. We are brothers and sisters. We are in a family. We have family membership. We have a relationship. We are co-equal members of the family. Now, it is true oftentimes in human families. When we get together, we might talk trash about one another. But generally speaking, I think we want to protect the reputation of our siblings uh, to outsiders. Remember growing up... um, my sister and I, uh, Michelle, did not get along. But if anybody tried to say anything about her or pick on her, I was there to defend her because she, in fact, is my sister. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are, in fact, to love one another and be concerned. The law of the kingdom is love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's not just our siblings. It is, in fact, those who are our neighbors. We should not defame. That's not part, should not be part of our human relationships. We should not. This brings us to the second thing. How do we regard the law, the law that God has given us? God has said that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, you know what? When we defame someone, we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves. And we are not only speaking against our neighbor, our brothers, we're speaking against the law. We're basically saying to the law, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you tell me to do. I'm going to talk trash about this person. Or I may tell the truth. I'll share this, the secret or whatever about this person with the world. Um, I don't care what the law says. We're acting as though we are in charge. We are a law to ourselves. For us, God's law no longer expresses the highest value. We do. I get to determine what is right. And therefore, people who say it's not gossip if it's true, in the sense they have set themselves above God's law. Okay. Which brings us to the third thing is, how are we to regard the law giver? God is the one who gave the law. So if we think the law is nothing, then what are we saying about God who gave us the law? We are, in fact, challenging his authority. We are disputing his authority. The law of God is not a a series of commands that are just arbitrary, where God's like, okay, how can I make their lives miserable? I'll tell them to do this and not do this. No, 
It is a reflection of God's character. God is holy, and so these laws came from him. When we say, no, I don't want to keep your law, I'm going to defame my neighbor or defame my brother or sister in Christ, then we are saying to God, you don't know what you're saying. We know better than you. We become the final authority. So, it is how we regard our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is how we regard the law, how we regard the lawgiver. But there's one more thing. How do we regard ourselves? But who are you, James asks. This is the question that James has been aiming for, I think, in this whole discussion. If we, in fact, humble ourselves, we have a correct view of ourselves as being in need of God's grace. We accept God's law for what it is. We accept that our brothers and sisters are, in fact, our brothers and sisters, that our neighbors are important to us, that we are to love them as we love ourselves. God is the final and supreme authority. But if we say, well, if we choose not to be humble, um, then we might wonder, what's wrong with telling the truth about somebody? What's wrong with allowing the situation to dictate your, you know, what you will do? What's wrong with letting your conscience be your guide, as people tell us? We have 24 hours a day news that are ready to tell us the truth, quote unquote, about other people. I would say there's a lack not only of civility, but a lack of humility. Who are we? If we do not acknowledge our position before God, then we will not see ourselves in need of grace. That's the first problem. The second one is found in verses 13 to 17. It comes from a wrong understanding of ourselves. You know, who are you? Well, if you don't know who you are, then you're going to go off the track in this regard. Look, if you would, in James 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year here, there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Several assumptions come into play here with regard to presumption. First of all, that time is on our side. Uh, it's at our disposal. Today, tomorrow, in a year, we will do this as though we are in control of time. But secondly, that the only thing that should motivate us or should direct us is in fact our motivation to make money and our ability. We will carry on business. So we make a plan. This is what we're going to do as though in fact we are in control of time and of our own lives. And James really, I think, brilliantly comes down on this. The presumption that we can continue to live at will, that it's up to us how long we're going to live, it touches choice, that we are the masters of our own lives. All we have to do is decide. And it touches ability. If we want to, we can do it. All it takes is the desire. In the words of the poem Invictus, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul.
you know, this, this seems so normal. This seems so natural. I mean, this seems to be that the way people live and the way that they talk, which is exactly the point. It is the absence of humility, seeing no need of grace whatsoever. For us as Americans, it is the American way of life. People come to this country because they want to be able, they imagine, to make their own choices, to be in control of their own lives. They live in repressive, under repressive regimes. They want to come here and have freedom and imagine that they have the, the freedom to do whatever it is they want. But this is not humility. This is not heavenly wisdom, as James would call it. It is earthly wisdom. In this, we speak to ourselves. We may not ever say this to other people. And in some ways, it may not even be something we say out loud to ourselves, but it's there in our thinking. That life is our right. Our choice is the only thing that matters. We have it within ourselves to be a success. And making money is life's sole objective. I think it would be helpful to consider who James is writing. James was the head of the church in Jerusalem, which consisted of dozens, if not hundreds, of small house groups, cell groups, if you wish. Uh, But he was the head of the church. And then persecution came. Uh, Stephen was stoned to death. He was the first martyr of the church. Um, And then the apostle James later was beheaded by Herod. Persecution had come. So those who could left. Who could leave? People who had money. People, I would say, who had businesses. And we will find later on that Paul, wherever he goes among the Gentiles, collects money for the poor in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's all who's left. The people who have money, they've skipped town. So they are, I think they have perhaps within themselves this sense that Yeah, we can take care of ourselves. We've got money, we've got a business, we've got a trade, we have connections, we've networked around the empire. We will be okay. And James says, when you talk that way, you are not being humble and you see no need of grace. What is James talking about here? What is he condemning? Is he against planning? We're going to go to that city and buy and sell. Is he against ambition? We will go and buy and sell and make money. Is he against setting goals? This is how much money we want to make. Is he against making money at all? And the answer to each of these is no. He is not against planning. He's not against ambition. He's not against setting goals or even making money. These, in and of themselves, are not wrong. We find Paul making plans. Uh, He writes to the Romans in Romans 15 and to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16 about what his plans are in Rome. He's going to go to Rome on his way to Spain. Uh, In Corinth, he was going to go up north and then come down and perhaps spend the winter with Corinth. Did not happen. Didn't happen. He wasn't able to follow through. Nothing wrong with making plans. Nothing wrong with making plans. And when you make plans, you set goals. Paul had the goal. It was his ambition. And he uses that word. It's my ambition to go to Rome. Nothing wrong with that. But there is an understanding that ultimately this is in God's hands. 
So he has to explain to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians, um, you know, I said I was coming, but I didn't come. But does that mean I lied? And it's like, no. You know, we make plans, but these things are in God's hands. So what is James about? What is he writing about? If he's not against planning, ambition, setting goals, or making money, he's against the attitude that may be present. What James rebukes is any kind of planning for the future that stems from human arrogance and our own ability. I will be able to do this. I will determine the course of future events. As he says in verse number 16 in chapter 4, As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So how do we avoid this? How do we humble ourselves, see ourselves in need of God's grace? When it is the natural tendency, and particularly in our culture as Americans, to be very, I'm going to do this. This is my goal. I will achieve my goal, and I will make money. Well, James reminds us of three basic truths. First of all, our ignorance. You do not know what will happen tomorrow. How do you make plans for next year or the year after when you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow? Um, Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Secondly, our frailty. What is your life? You are a mist. I think the King James has vapor. You appear for a little while and then vanishes. We are on this planet temporarily. We are temporary, but we are not insignificant. And that's important. Um, one might read uh, James and in other places uh, in the Psalms particularly that speak of us, speaks of us as a vapor, as a mist. It's just something that's here and then gone. And we might think, well, then we're not that important. No, we are made in the image of God. Remember, we're all headed to the new creation. But we are temporary. We are temporary. There's one more truth. We are dependent. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. It's a conviction found throughout Scripture. Consider Jesus in the garden when he prays, not as I will, but as you will. Your will be done. Paul says to the Ephesian believers as he left, I will come back if it is God's will. And then in Romans 15, as I mentioned earlier, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. This is the heart of the matter. But it is a passage that is often misunderstood because James is not saying stop planning, don't make goals, it's wrong for you to earn any money, not at all. Nor is he saying, you should always say, if it's the Lord's will. That somehow becomes a magical mantra, that if you say that, uh, then things will turn out the way that you want. Not at all. It is an attitude of humility. I am in need of God's grace every moment of every day. And so as I go about my life, I should say, or should have an attitude, that it is God who is in control, and that if it is the Lord's will. I am ignorant of the future. I don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour, let alone in a year or ten years. 
I am frail as a temporary, a temporal creature, and I am dependent upon God. It is worth noting, think about this, if Adam and Eve had not sinned, they still would not know the future. Let's say Adam and Eve had not sinned, and then the world is populated with their offspring. Each one would still not know the future. We want to know the future, and that's why astrology and psychics and all that are so popular, but we cannot. We cannot know the future. And if Adam and Eve had not sinned, we would still be dependent upon God. He is the creator. But Adam and Eve did sin. And so how much more do we need God's grace? James says, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. He writes in verse 16, all as it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Even when, even in the secret, almost unrecognized ways, we forget how frail we are. And we stop being dependent upon God as the creator. There is an element within us of pride that I can take care of myself. I am self-sufficient. And this is wrong. So chapter 4 ends rather unusually, at least for me. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. For some reason, I've always thought this verse seemed a bit out of place. How does it connect with what he's just said? Um, he moves from verse 16 about boasting and bragging and now in verse number 17 he's talking about doing good and if you don't do it in fact you are sinning we need to recognize that as God's people our calling in life is not simply to avoid doing bad things if you wish sinful things like boasting and bragging that's only half of it The other half is we should do the things that God has commanded us to do. And if we don't do that, then we sin. I think most of us would agree if you do certain things that God says don't do that, when you do that, you sin. We forget, or it hasn't occurred to us, if I don't do the things that I know I should do, then that is also sin. So in fact, if you sort of feel a bit proud that I have not done these things. I have avoided these things this past week. There are certain sins that uh, seem to be my weakness, but by God's grace, I did not do these things. But then let me ask you, did you do the things that God commanded? And if you did not, then in fact, you have sinned. It's quite remarkable. And I think it's hard for us, living when and where we do, because we have so much information that we assume we don't have to do anything about. That is, if you turn on your computer or turn on the TV and watch the news and you learn about certain things, you're like, well, that's interesting, but it requires nothing of me. I don't have to do anything. And so the pattern has become in our thinking, I can know and know and know and not do anything. In other words, I can be humble before God and know I am in need of grace and not do anything. And James says, not at all. If you know the things you ought to do and you don't do it, 
than it is sin. And again, living when and where we do, there's just so much information that at a certain point, I think emotionally, we just shut down. We're like, yeah, I, I, I saw that on the news. It requires nothing of me. I'm not going to do anything about it. Okay. The next two things will be very short. So what is humility? Okay. What is humility? Is humility an attitude or an action? Yes. That's both. Number three, for you to consider, it should be clear that humility is not our default setting. Humility is not our default setting. I'm not sure I need to say very much about this. If we listen to what scripture tells us, it becomes clear humility does not come naturally. I would argue, well, I won't argue, I will say, that having an inferiority complex is not the same thing as humility. So we might think, well, this person is just naturally humble. No, it just doesn't come natural. Humility is acknowledging one's place before God and one's need of God's grace. We need to keep that in our thinking. And lastly, if in fact it is not our default setting, what path should we follow? What example should we follow? And the example is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is humility? An unusually low concern for status coordinated with an intense concern for some good. It is a, relatively, a relative lack of concern to appear excellent to others. Now listen to what, I, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. With that in mind, that is an unusually low concern for status and a lack of concern to appear excellent. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The example of Jesus, what do we see? Let, have this attitude, have the same attitude. And what do we see in him? He humbles himself, taking on the form of a servant. It is an attitude, it is actions. And if we want to know how it is that we should be humble, we should look at the Lord Jesus as our example. So four things for you to think about with regard to humility. Let me just close with the wonderful words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If in fact we will see ourselves as we are in need of God's grace, we can go to the one who humbled himself, the one who is gentle 
and he will give us rest. Let's pray together. Our Father, humility does not come to us naturally. And in our culture, that becomes doubly so. We seem to thrive on people who exalt themselves, who are always out there, who are always in the news. The notion of seeing ourselves in need of grace and not being concerned for status just sort of rubs us the wrong way. But in fact, we are to see ourselves for who we are. We are frail. We are temporary, but not insignificant. And we are dependent upon you. By your grace, by your spirit, may we think on these things in the coming week. And as James wrote earlier in his letter, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. That our humility should not only be an attitude, but it should be seen in our actions. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Pray for Tom as he flies back today that you would give him safety. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.